You are listening to www.infinitesmile.org. Enjoy these Zen Inspired Talks given by Michael McAllister, followed up by question and answer exchanges with groups of his students. A monk asked Yun Men, What are the teachings of an entire lifetime? And Yun Men said an appropriate response. What are the teachings of an entire lifetime? An appropriate response. You can translate this a couple of different ways, and actually uh, I, I read somewhere once that it was instead of the teachings of an entire lifetime being an appropriate response, that it was actually facing your own singularity. Uh, an appropriate statement was the other thing that kind of came came from some of the stuff I, I had read years ago. And I've always just looked at this as being fundamentally the core of what we're doing. Figuring out how to generate an appropriate response to whatever life offers in any moment. And miraculously, this means that anything that we face can be imbued with awakening. Anything that we face is an opportunity for enlightenment, be it wonderful or horrible, whether it opens us or we shrink from, from it. Everything that arises is an opportunity for enlightenment. You know, I think it's fair also to say that uh, everything is an opportunity for enlightenment, especially when things get difficult. Because when things get difficult, they show us our resistance. And that resistance is ego. And that's what leads us right into our addictions, whatever they happen to be. Maybe it's shopping. Maybe it's drink. Maybe it's food. Maybe it's sex. Maybe it's Buddhism. Maybe it's any type of thing that takes us out of our perceived entrapment. Whatever that might be also has then the seeds sown within uh, an opportunity for us to awaken or for us to fall deeper and deeper asleep. And so there's this great question that kind of keeps hopefully bubbling up for most of us as we endeavor along this path, and that is, do the situations and circumstances of life open us, or do they close us? If we do find ourselves becoming closed by the circumstances of life, we are being given a gift and that gift is that we are being shown what our attachments are. Our attachments, the things that we cling to. I want things to be a certain way. I, I see myself as this. I identify with this. He should not do this. She should not do this. You know, whatever, whatever those attachments are, 
when they're being shown to us, we have an opportunity to let go of them. Whenever they're being shown to us, we can identify, witness, and in the witnessing is our first step of surrendering. Whatever might be arising. Amazingly, if we are feeling anything other than grace and ease and spaciousness, we are feeling the activity of ego. We are feeling the activity of our separate self-sense. So, as we've said again and again, we should study our experience, whatever it happens to be. And by study, it's not so that we can get an understanding of it. It's so that we can know it. Meaning, not knowing it from a contracted place, from our mind, but knowing it from an open place that resonates in deep accordance with spirit. So knowing with a capital K is what we could, it's like infinite knowing as opposed to circumstantial knowing. Conventional truth, we might call it, you know, those things we can understand. But then in the ultimate truth, there is only the vibrating subatomic particles that we all are, the waves and photons of light, energy. That's all there really is. But we're also here. These are the two truths that Nagarjuna talked about. And so in our practice, we not only discuss the relative or conventional or normal truth of I am here and you're out there, but we also really endeavor to expand into that which is I am you are we are we are all one we are all the universe unfolding so studying this experience whenever anything happens studying the experience of anything and everything is key When we start feeling resistance, anything other than grace and ease, it's absolutely critical to be supremely alert. Alert to what is being shown and what is being offered. Whenever we feel tension arise, watch it. We're being offered a gift when that happens. Do not run away from it. Do not run away from it. Watch it fearlessly. Don't flinch. We need to be so alert that we can even watch in these circumstances ego corrupt the offering of whatever is being offered. Ego immediately starts going into some storytelling pattern. Ego immediately goes into some type of defensive posture. Ego immediately goes into, I want more of that. Okay? And then when that happens, we fall into, instead of the deep consciousness which is beyond ego, which can observe ego's machinations, ego's silliness. Instead of being beyond, we actually fall back into the contraction of ego, which then puts us automatically in a place that is the opposite of grace and ease. 
So it's absolutely critical that whenever unconsciousness arises in another person, especially, that we don't let ego corrupt that offering. That we don't fall into our habitual pattern, our habitual addiction of pointing fingers. We don't point fingers. We don't immediately get defensive. We don't act judgmental towards another or ourselves. We don't blame ourselves or others. We just don't react to anybody else's unconsciousness. We don't react to our own unconsciousness. We watch it with full attention, with all of our alertness. We just stay there without flinching. And only from that place is there ever an appropriate response. When that stillness, when that observer becomes our psychological and our spiritual center of gravity instead of the contracted ego, then suddenly all of the work that we do in life, all of the lives that we touch, every single step that we take is somehow miraculously imbued with grace and ease. And this happens really whenever we are the awareness of what's going on. Whenever we are the awareness of what's going on, grace and ease is the only place that we can ever be. We have gone from the conventional into the ultimate. We've gone from the circumstantial, the life situation, into ultimate living, the embodiment of peace. So I wanted to talk real quickly a little bit about, at least, how we relate to others' lack of awareness. What, in other words, do we do? I mean, it's easy enough to talk about this in the, you know, kind of an esoteric way. Even in the practical sense of things, we can kind of say, yeah, sure, that makes sense. You know, you just kind of open up to the infinite, and then everything's all cool and groovy, right? Well, what about when somebody else is really, really throwing a tremendous lack of awareness in your direction? How is it that you can remain still, courageously holding stillness in the face of this activity that feels like it's coming right at you? The first thing is to recognize that neither they nor you, according to the teaching, is simply their unconsciousness. You are not your unconsciousness. They are not their unconsciousness. There is so much more to them. There is so much more to you. So to immediately perceive that the person who just cut in line is a total jerk. Remember, they need you to have that judgment of them to become a jerk. It's a co-arising. Okay? In other words, both things arise together. The situation arises. What is the response? If the response is, aha, that person's a jerk. You've just pointed a finger. You've just judged. You've just gotten defensive. 
Next thing is important that's important to do, I believe, is to recognize that no person, according to the teaching, can be with your awareness and remain unconscious at the same time. They cannot be fully with your consciousness and remain unconscious at the same time. If you are fully conscious, in other words, that's about as contagious as anything imaginable. More so than a yawn or poison oak. Seriously, your consciousness, your full consciousness, <laughs> really has an effect on human beings. And it can push them in one of two directions. Either they open or they become even more unconscious. Do you have the courage to be with that? Do you have the courage to be so conscious that actually it can create a negative, resistant, finger-pointing coming your direction without flinching? Because if you can, you're giving them a gift. Their intensity of unconsciousness will reach an end point eventually if you continually meet them with your consciousness. This is evidence throughout history. Throughout history, consciousness has eventually won over unconsciousness. Talk to Gandhi. Talk to Mother Teresa. Talk to Dr. King. We need to recognize also, according to the teaching, that letting our deep, unattached awareness, or our knowing, as I've kind of put it, letting this deep knowing that extends beyond the boundaries of mind and beyond the aspects of past and future or time, allow this in you to support a deeper awareness for everybody is hard work but this is what it's like to walk in the steps of those who tread before us as bodhisattvas or as saints as really good people as people who respond appropriately to what life offers as people who are staring at their own singularity their own union with the universe the one song so this is really what helps support an awakening for all beings we start compassionately with our own bodies our own hearts and our own minds and in this ritual of sitting still with each other we begin to change ourselves and we begin to change our world. Our relationship with our own bodies and minds shifts, and our relationship with the world and the rest of the universe shifts. And in that shift, we heal. In that shift, we, we become helpful. Acting from any other place but that is really just nourishing and giving validity to that habitual and seductive 
contraction of ego. And it's not that ego is bad. It's that ego left unstudied drives our bus of consciousness perilously close to things that don't deserve to get run over. Allowing ego to continually drive this bus of consciousness means that we go through life asleep. That that freedom, that grace and ease is hidden. Not only from us, but from everyone else that deserves to get it from us. By everyone else who deserves our ability to offer an appropriate response in life. So, just as kind of a wrap-up here, our, our duty really as, as people involved in a stillness practice is to recognize how unconsciousness is simply ego in action, how unconsciousness only needs one thing to stay alive, and that's more unconsciousness. It feeds on itself. It cannibalizes. And it cannibalizes its form no matter where it is, whether it's in ourselves or in another, in order to maintain a defensive position over what it perceives as its dominion over truth. Ego will just devour more unconsciousness as it sees fit in order to protect its position. And anyone that gets in the way of that is a threat and will somehow be destroyed. This is war. This is how war starts. Within, and then collectively it intensifies because ego cannibalizes itself. Unconsciousness cannibalizes itself. It feeds on itself and then starts throwing it out in even more potent forms that get not only ourselves, but others in trouble. This is an inappropriate response. This is instead of us facing our unity with all things, this is facing and staying contracted in the bunker that has been made by our separate self-sense. And from there, we can only ever be at a varying degree of war. So, an appropriate response then can take on all sorts of various forms. We give everything, our full, generous, intentional awareness in every single step with everything that we do. When we do this, it helps the entire world, not only ourselves, but everybody else that we touch. And this is because our path at this point is informed by our, partic- our participation in something that is beyond form. It's informed by a deep inclusion of spirit rather than a petty separation between what we think is us and them. The petty separation of me and you. We start facing our oneness. 
And when we can do this with a full heart and a full mind, fearlessly we meet it, whether it's on our cushion, in our car, or as we converse with someone, especially those who are unconscious in our view, they're giving us a gift. And that gift is an opportunity to share an appropriate response. And these are the teachings of a whole lifetime. This is Buddha. Yeah, you talk about an appropriate response. It can an ever appropriate response be no response? Yeah. Sometimes that's really appropriate. Sometimes that is also a beautiful response to just be silent. Sometimes that says it all. Sometimes an appropriate response is a scream that comes from somewhere very deep. It's not, and this is where people get really confused with the teaching, it's not that you should always be silent or attach to your silence. It's also that you should not attach to your violence. If we are responding from a place that is uncontracted, sometimes the scream is appropriate. Sometimes the killing is appropriate. As far as that goes, I mean, I mean that seems to just fly right in the face of the teaching, right? But if your loved one was dying and you could give them an antibiotic which is killing the bacteria that is killing your son or daughter, is that an appropriate response? Sure. I, 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 I go back to this example a great deal. When my mother was a very, very soft-spoken woman, but I knew that her reaction in relationship to the safety of her children pretty profound in a couple of great instances. Among them, when uh, one of my younger brothers decided to walk into uh, a parking lot with a, a degree of speed, and she w had one kid on her hip. I think I was doing something else, maybe trying to carry some groceries or something like that. And I've never seen her move as quickly and with as much force in her voice as when she scooped up the child who, who ran out ahead of her when she said not to. Was that an appropriate response? Yeah, probably. So the key thing here is not to attach to a view of what an appropriate response is, but to allow all of your activity to come from that place of openness and love If it's coming from a place of openness and love and it is not about grasping or avoiding, then most likely it's always going to be the perfect thing. Now, is my mother attaching to the life of her child? Mm-hmm. Does that cause suffering in her? Mm-hmm. So we can go in all sorts of different directions here, but recognizing, recognizing that for every action there is an equal and opposite reaction as in physics so in our emotional life so in our day to day 
studying this allows us to be free of it. So you would say an appropriate response is based in love. Always. Not the kind of love, though, that has any greed associated with it. And and that kind of love, the kind of love that has no greed associated with it, we call compassion. So any appropriate response is going to be fueled by that rather than the contraction, which is separation. You can make that case that separation actually is the opposite of compassion. Compassion arises from an inclusive embrace that doesn't grip but allows but it's there so when you're compassionate are you always making excuses for people excuses for their behavior if you are Mm -hmm. you're not being compassionate are you the most unloving thing I could do for an alcoholic to offer them a drink. Right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Don't give the poison, whatever it is, to someone who's craving the poison. In other words, Sheila, if you, you know, if you're, if if compassion becomes spineless, Mm -hmm. it's not compassion. Mm -hmm. You are becoming an enabling force for a person who desperately needs to meet you. Instead, what you're doing, you know, is you become nothing that can hold up any part of their their consciousness, least of all your own. Mm-hmm. The offering that you give is one of mushy as opposed to one of open, but here. Mm-hmm. Right? Firmness. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's among the most compassionate things we can ever do to support somebody else's consciousness and our own is to step into the light of awareness in our absolute radiant fullness and say no. Or say, sure. But it depends on what the intention is behind the action. Is your intention just to make people happy? If your intention is to make people happy, you are building a house of cards. If your intention, on the other hand, is to make people conscious, then you're helpful. Making them, Happiness is fleeting. Right? Happiness comes and goes. It's born in time, and it dies into time. I mean, you know. But consciousness is ever-expanding. It's a gift that lasts because it is beyond time. It is beyond mind. Giving our fellow human beings that gift changes the world. Making them happy is like giving them a shot, you know? So how does one make another person conscious besides just being conscious? 
Is there that, is no other way necessary. You start it. You start it. And then what happens is every time they participate with you in any type of interchange, you're coming from a place that is deeper, that's broader, that's more caring, more sensitive, more loving, more open. And like I said, a person who is contracted cannot, cannot stay contracted in the face of that openness. They can try. They can even become more intensely contracted. But as long as you stay open like that, it's just like light shining in darkness. Darkness cannot stay dark in the face of light. Be that light. But does firmness turn into being judgmental? It can. Mm-hmm. There's a fine line there. It can. But firmness can also be a very resolute space to confuse firmness with, you know, this is, this is the way it will be. These are my limits. That's actually giving a person the resistance necessary for them to dance with you. You cannot do the tango without the partner resisting in just the right way. She can't spin unless she pushes against my hand. But then watch what happens. That That is so necessary. That resistance. Not resistance as in, you know, hiding. But mm-hmm. resistance as in, I am here as the universe. I am here as emptiness. You can't move emptiness. And I am all of that. Let's dance. And just watch what happens to the relationships in that space. It's it's pretty remarkable. Emptiness with limits. Emptiness with the limits that are given by time and mind. Your mind, your sense of time, others' minds, others' senses of time. That right there is the world of form. That is the conventional world. As long as that is informed by the ultimate then you as a participant in the real world, so to speak, you change it. You enliven it. You make it more conscious. You allow people to go from small case K, knowing, to capital K, knowing. And you are that catalyst because you see yourself in them and them, they are simply reflections of you. You face your own oneness. And those are the teachings of a lifetime. Okay, thank you. Yeah. What you said about resistance, um, which <clears throat> the example was the tango. Mm-hmm. Um, is that resistance like a guide? Mm-hmm. And and where does uh, what ha- There's danger of the ego in mm-hmm. the guide. Mm-hmm. So how do you... Ego can jump in the back door at any time. Ego really would love to be able to manage this process of unfolding, of opening. Yeah. The resistance that I speak of in relationship to the metaphor that I always use about the dance or, or the tango in this case is awareness. The more aware you are, the more unconsciousness is going to butt up against it, okay? 
the idea is to have that awareness literally transmute that lack of awareness into awareness itself how does a lack of awareness perpetuate by finding more unconsciousness more lack of awareness but it dies ultimately in the face of awareness when the light of awareness is shown on that lack of awareness it disappears darkness disappears when light is shown right so allow your awareness metaphorically to be the resistance that you offer don't ever allow a lack of consciousness to catch you as best you can and when you do fall off you know you do fall down just get up do it again it's a practice it's a practice and it's not that practice makes perfect in this case it's practice uncovers the inherent perfection that's always been for you and the other person